I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means we are in the last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including applications to the college, amazing online courses. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, dating back eight years now, can be found at hughforhillsdale.com. This week, we continue in Tocqueville. The last two weeks, we've been talking about Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America with Dr. Larry On, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. Khalil Habib, who is a professor there and an expert on Tocqueville. In fact, Dr. Habib, I looked up your resume, and I see that recently you wrote Persecution and the Art of Freedom to Tocqueville on the importance of free press and free speech in a democratic society. So you're a ringer. I didn't even know that. <laughs> that's right. I've been thinking about him for a long time, and I think that's my second uh, publication on Tocqueville, and there's many more planned. Well, let's begin then. Uh, like Dr. Owen suggested last week, uh, we should let show ponies show. We should let teachers <laughs> teach. Uh, and am I right about that, Dr. Owen? He's one of your prized uh, professors? Yeah, if, I, if he goes too far, I'll intervene. Okay, good, good, good. So, so, Dr. Habib, let's begin with freedom of the press and the importance of civic association. I'm going to post up the link to the Liberty Fund edition, which is free and available to everyone. But take it from there in our, in our first segment today. Sure. So um, one of the things that struck me teaching Tocqueville for many years is how little was ever written and published on the freedom of the press. It's one of the only themes that he spends two sections discussing. He doesn't do that with any other subject. And at one point, he even says that the freedom of the press, which he views as an extension of the freedom of speech, is really the backbone of a free society. Now, why is he interested in this? Because he recognizes that the press can abuse its power. He recognizes, in fact, at one point, even refers to them as fake news, spreading malice, uh, destroying people's lives. He even quotes a passage from an, an early American newspaper. And yet, Surprisingly, he says, I do not support censorship of any kind whatsoever. And um, in spite of its abuses, he says that there can be no middle ground between having the freedom to speak and to write and having complete servitude. Once you start censoring, you're down to a slippery slope. But like we discussed in the first episode, Tocqueville's largely concerned with explaining to the French why their press got it wrong and why America has it right. In France, there was a centralized government and a centralized press, and the two were always at odds with each other. But the press, because it was controlled by a handful of elites, would often foment rebellion without any kind of check on it. In America, he praises the American newspaper and the spirit with which journalists will pursue stories. And, and unlike France, when Tocqueville comes to America, he sees that America is decentralized and its press is decentralized. So what it has is it's fragmented public opinion and has prevented uh, the centralization of just one voice dominating public opinion. For now, Tocqueville, that is the biggest danger. Now, in Jacksonian America, Dr. Habib, and maybe Dr. Arn as well, it's a very different press than we had now. It was openly, nakedly partisan People knew who owned it. People knew what their point of view was. And it was everywhere available from every point of view. Uh, Dr. Arnold, am I correctly describing early uh, Republic press? Oh, yeah. Well, the, you know, the Arizona Republican, right? There's uh, Arkansas Democrat. They were, they were party-affiliated newspapers. And I, my, my own view is that's far superior to what we have today because 
partisanship has been replaced by a sort of social science conception of neutrality. Uh, and so they can all be the same because they all pretend to be neutral. And, and so it's a phalanx now that, such as I at least, have never seen. But yeah, that's, in those days, you know, just think the, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers are competing newspaper articles. And that means there's an argument in front of the public. Now, Dr. Habib, just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court upheld the First Amendment rights of a high school student to post online an expletive-laden tirade, not against a particular high school, although everyone knew who she was talking about. She was a cheerleader who got cut from a squad or something like that. That was not what Tocqueville had in mind when he was talking about a free press, though, was it? No, that's correct. I mean, what he had in mind, um, and he says it explicitly, and the benefits of a free press really should be to hold public authorities accountable. And this is why he wants uh, the press to remain the voice of rights and liberty, not abuse. But on the other hand, and this is what makes him so unique, he quotes passages where people in the press are slandering um, public officials. I mean, he really brings out some of their worst tendencies and yet still warns that, you know, it's too dangerous to start censoring because then it has no end. And then before you know it, everybody is silent. So it is one of the problems of a free society. But he says that kind of tension in society is a sign that you're free as opposed to a subject in a despotism where there's just uniformity and just, on, at least on the surface, tranquility. But we'll also talk about, I think, He's writing in an age where religion has a hold on the public consciousness and morality mm -hmm. comes from other than the government law code. So people don't write about everything that they want to write about. They are not obscene. They are not uh, provocative. They are not um, uh, profane. I don't think he's actually got any idea where freedom of the press, widely defined or free speech, would take us. Do you think he does, Dr. Habib? You know, that's a good question. Um, well, you're right on the question of religion. I know we'll probably talk about this later when he discusses the American family. He says that Americans are generally free and they don't micromanage their children because they're still churched. They're still very pious. And so I think to some degree, he does believe that religion can help us become free citizens because in order to rule yourself, you have to have moral virtue. But he does point out, though, that there's nothing new in the press being um, agitators. What he, he thinks it's dangerous when it's centralized and there's only one voice. He thinks you can mitigate against some of its worst excesses if you have a diversity of opinion. Because what you want is you want to fragment or decentralize public opinion. Then you've really controlled the effects, to borrow the, the language of the Federalist Papers, of factions and you're not, and not, and and what you hear in the press doesn't have a, um, an enormous influence on politics. It can be neutralized when other voices can also push back against it. Now, if anyone knows anything about Tocqueville other than what they heard in the first two hours, they will know that he was a great proponent of clubs, of associations, of civic associations. But he was stunned by the variety and number of them in, in 1830s America. Why is that connected up with freedom of the press, Dr. Abib? Well, he thinks that, again, unlike France, where uh, people had grown apathetic and indifferent to politics, there were no associations. Nothing had really replaced feudalism where you belonged to at least one of the estates and that there were leaders within those who could 
protect your liberties and your rights. In America, he said, they found an alternative to uh, feudalism where people can voluntarily join associations and to protect rights. The section on associations is tied to the right of freedom of speech, and it's also tied to Tocqueville's discussions of rights. So think, for example, of how difficult it would be to protect our right to bear arms if you didn't have powerful associations that people can voluntarily choose to advocate when public opinion can potentially turn against you. So for him, he thought America really figured out something uh, powerful. Uh, You can't go back to feudalism. You can't depend on an aristocracy or a king. We don't have them. And so you have to rely on public spiritedness and civic associations were the best means for people to preserve their liberty. We are talking today because of a voluntary association. The members of Hillsdale College who got together. What year did you found your college, Dr. Arn? 1844. And how many people combined to get it going? Uh, You know, well, first six, and then uh, the town of Hillsdale, the leadership of the town of Hillsdale, then hundreds, and, you know, then thousands, now millions. And now millions. You see, I think that is actually the genius of what Tocqueville saw. And Hillsdale is private. The college doesn't accept any federal funding. We have a minute, Dr. On, right? It stands alone, sometimes opposed to the local tyrants, but they stand alone. Well, the first step is a model of all the later ones. Uh, Hill, it was agreed with the people in the town that we would have a college here. And we were in the city hall, which still stands today. Uh, but nobody thought of asking anybody from the government to attend the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> may, it, may it remain that for a long time. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about the advantages of a free society that is rooted in democracy and a free press and in civic association. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Everything Hillsdale, including your ability to sign up for the Imprimus newsletter, which will arrive snail mail, the old-fashioned way, in your mailbox, is at hillsdale.edu. Stand by, America. If and when news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first. First, when Hugh Hewitt continues. Dialogue is underway. Last radio hour of the week. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guests are Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his great professors, Dr. Khalil Habib, an expert in Tocqueville. And we have flung ourselves forward into book two, part two of Democracy in America. What distinguishes the two parts, uh, Professor, before we dive into American society and its link with democracy? Well, the two parts you could really see as in the first, Tocqueville's examining the role of religion civic association, um, ideas about rights, which he's very good on. And in the second half, he's interested in the effects of equality and the rising uh, equality of conditions on those very ideas. So the first half discusses the ideas that really help make America unique and and, um, really an example of a, a Republican form of government. And in the second half, uh, the threats to those very ideas. 
Now, how does he explain to the French? Because, again, you emphasize in our first of four conversations that this is for the French people. How does he explain the American understanding of rights as it might differ from the European and specifically the French definition of rights? Well, that's a great question. And I know that there are going to be uh, fans of Tocqueville who might be offended at what I point out. (laughs) There's some on the left and the right who think that Tocqueville joins them in disparaging rights. Um, You know, they have this attitude that uh, ideas of rights lead to license and all of the ills of society. That's not what Tocqueville says. Um, If you look on page 389 in the Liberty Fund, here's what he actually says. There are no great peoples without the idea of rights. That's an amazing statement. And then he says, after the general idea of moral virtue, I do not know anything more beautiful than that of rights, or rather, these two ideas merge, and they're distinct from license and tyranny. So Tocqueville, just like Locke, rights are a form of duty. In order for me to honor or expect others to honor my right to to property, I have a duty to respect the property of others. And in fact, Tocqueville introduces rights largely through property, just as Locke does. So why does he bring this up? One, uh, as you just heard uh, directly from him, rights are natural for, for Tocqueville. They're the source of our liberty. And in France, rights were separated from any ideas of property. They were abstract. Uh, they, were gover- they were pushed by people, Tocqueville says, who really didn't have any more political experience. And in America, he says, the second you're born, you're introduced to private property and the duty to maintain it. And you learn very quickly how you're dependent on others to preserve your, your, your rights and your liberty. And so he thought that that was a far more moderate approach to rights than in France. And this is so timely. And again, it, it comes on the heels, our conversation two weeks ago, of the Supreme Court ruling six to three in a case called Cedar Point Nurseries to uphold, brought by the Pacific Legal Foundation, longtime friends of Dr. Arn and my, to support an agricultural community's right to exclude labor organizers. And in it, Chief Justice Roberts quotes John Adams saying, without the right of property, there can be no liberty. Dr. Arn, that was what I was waiting for out of this new court is a resurrection of the Fifth Amendment, and it's arrived. The right to property is back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, they, they've been doing a great job on the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And uh, they, you know, so... Lord, may they continue. Uh, and think what a contrast that is, by the way. There was that case, uh, it's an important property rights case 20 years ago. You, you'll know the case. And what, there's some, there's some property on, uh, on a breakwater off South Carolina. I think. Lucas. That's right. Oh, Lucas, yeah. And, and the argument was that you don't have to have any right to use your property. You can be completely interfered with in the use of your property as long as you can exclude others from going on it. <laughs> and that, that means, you know, you could own the Garden of Eden, but you might yes. not be able to go in there. <laughs> you can't go in, though. And, and if there's an endangered species there, you can't go in. In fact, Dr. Arn and I go back so long that we actually came together originally over the Endangered Species Act. And I hope that, that the rights theory of Tocqueville which was understood by the framers so correctly and just articulated by Dr. Habib, inhabits and spreads in that six-justice majority. If it does, much will change, and their law will be respected again. When we come back, we're going to talk about that, because the respect for the law was deep and widespread in 1830s America when de Tocqueville traveled and wrote 
Dr. Habib will tell us about that when we return, as well as the tyranny of the majority and the threat that it poses to the respect for law. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. You're in the middle of a non-stop, action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. My guests today, as they were for the past two weeks, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. Khalil Habib, he is an expert in Tocqueville, among many other things, and a great teacher. I've discovered that over the last three weeks. And we are talking about Tocqueville, as we have for the last two weeks and will again next week. And we have come up to the tyranny of the majority. But before we go there, uh, Professor, uh, you pointed out in Chapter 6, Tocqueville is a part two, a huge admirer of Americans' admiration in 1830s for the rule of law. Would you expand on that? Right. And he actually traces the rule of law to our ideas of rights. Um, And you had asked earlier before the break, what was he hoping to teach the French by the American example? Here's Here's another example on page 390, again, in the Liberty Fund. Why is it in America, he says, the country of democracy par excellence, does no one raise against property in general the complaints that are often resounding in Europe? Uh, In America, there are no proletarians, and each person having an individual possession to defend recognizes in principle the right of property. Again, high praise. And the rule of law, um, you you would property rights. I mean, and it's not, this isn't the only kind of right that he's thinking of, but it's a very powerful one and a great way to introduce people to responsible citizenship and the rule of law. Law is to protect those rights. It, it doesn't give them. They are there by nature, and nature's God. And so for Tocqueville, you can't expect a law-abiding society that doesn't have a mature and responsible understanding of rights. No, Ninety years after Tocqueville wrote that, in city of Euclid, the Supreme Court upheld zoning, Larry Arn, and the American people today would have no understanding of the American understanding of property and the rule of law and the right of a property owner to use their property that was everywhere. Uh, bounded only by the law of nuisance. You could not destroy your neighbor's value by building, say, a tannery on your house in the middle of a church square. But other than the law of nuisance, Americans were free to do with their land what they saw fit. And Lincoln went forward, and and because it's overshadowed by the Civil War, the Homestead Act took property and just made it everywhere available to everyone. Ten ten percent of the land area of the United States was given to two and a half million people in a document that's 1,400 words long. <laughs> it's it's one amazing. of the greatest pieces of legislation in human history. And, and, uh, and all you had to do was go settle on it. And, you know, there's not codicil 4892 about how the local ombudsman or burgermeister is going to determine, you know. Just, you know, they just pass this whacking big old law. And then a bunch of people out there in the West figured out how to implement it. And, that's, and Dr. You know. Habib, they all went to that property, those homesteaders, and they, they had an idea of what they were going to do and what they were allowed to do on their own land. That's right. 
Uh, can you move on, though, to what he's worried about? Here we have this great republic of freeholders, vastly expanding in 1835, growing more by the end of 1870. But the majority tyranny is something that worried the framers, worried the Declaration of Independence signers. What does it mean and what does Tocqueville think about it? So the section on rights that we had just discussed is really an introduction to the problem of what he calls the tyranny of the majority. And like the Federalist, he's concerned with factions, um, with, with, with the groups that want to destroy the rights of others. And in the portion on the tyranny of the majority, he says that there's an inherent tension between equality and liberty in any dem democratic society. But equality can take two forms, a noble form, where we all recognize that it's just to rule and to be ruled in turn. And he calls it an ennobling form of equality. What he fears is what he calls a degraded form of equality, where the majority uh, thinks it's so sovereign that it can trample the rights of the minority. And here he means, again, numerical majority and, and, a, and a numerical minority. And he thinks that the tyranny of the majority is really underwritten by two fundamental assumptions. And he says them on page 404 and 405 for your listeners who want to follow along. The first is that the majority assumes that there's greater enlightenment and wisdom in a group, and so therefore they're not going to listen to individual challenges to the sovereignty of the majority. And the other assumption is that the greatest number must come before the few. And so what Tocqueville's really concerned about here is that, sure, you can have a large country that can neutralize the effects of factions, but what if public opinion, which covers the entire nation, is dominated by a handful of elites who utilize the idea of egalitarianism to agitate the public and to trample on the rights of the few. Think, for example, of, say, po uh, political correctness. Tocqueville's biggest concern in the tyranny of the majority is actually the damage that it can cause to independent thinking. And so his, his fear is that the, the rights of the individual are going to be drowned out in a world where there's nothing to really check public opinion. And this is why He's so fixated on the ideas of civic associations, on freedom of speech, the role that newspapers should play in the press in, in protecting the downtrodden and the rights of the individuals. You know, it's so chilling to think about that. On this show last year, Attorney General Barr, in the aftermath of the first quarantine order, said, we've never been uh, in this country ever required en masse to stay within our homes and that we were nearing, he didn't say we had broken through a point, Dr. Larry Arn, that we had never seen before. He didn't say, but it was intimated, a point of no return, really, when people are sequestered in their homes by order of the government. Now, we've emerged from that, blessedly, in most places. Do you think we learned anything about that, about tempering the tyranny of the majority, especially when under the whip of fear? Uh, well, by, what do you mean, we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, the governor of Michigan thinks that she saved thousands of lives, and only we murderers are critical of her. Uh, but I think she's learned something, and that is this didn't go very well. And it went horribly. She, she'll it never went admit terribly. That. But the next time they'll be more. They have passed a rule in Michigan, uh, the health department emergency rule, that permits them to do this again. And uh, but next time they'll do it, you know, because. Here's what it, what it uh, descended into or changed into. At first, it was just general lockdown. And you saw these pictures of everywhere except Hillsdale, Michigan, of empty streets. 
including major cities, right? But then it's, you know, casinos, yes, choirs and churches, no, uh, six feet, which, by the way, uh, the, somebody at the CDC, according to a publication of ours by Richard uh, Daniel Halperin, an expert at North Carolina, somebody at the CDC thought that uh, uh, a meter was five feet. Because <laughs> <laughs> so they I didn't know up. that. Yeah, that's right. So you know, I mean, you know, these experts, right? Even I, I know that. So so you know, they'll next time it'll be more complicated, and then and then the, the thing that'll happen until we, by the way, have you know national police in every city is that. These laws, which are so detailed, and you know, you and and they change. You know, the governor would change them three times a week. Uh, if that, then compliance becomes, you know, who knows? And and you know, in places like Hillsdale, Michigan, and I'm not talking about the college. I mean, the college is very stubborn, but uh, in the town, you know, we had a Fourth of July parade last summer, and we had like three thousand people there. And and it was a partisan event because uh, there are political candidates, you know, marching behind cars. We get big tractors and cars and, at our at our really great parades in Hillsdale, and there was just one bunch that all had on masks. And somebody said, "What is that?" And I said, "I think it's somebody running for office." And uh, and they said, "Wonder what party?" <laughs> and they were wearing masks. And I said, can't you tell? <laughs> you know, Dr. Abib, I'm wondering, have, have you been tempted to write Tocqueville on the on the pandemic? Because there's so much in Tocqueville that would be applicable to the the two years that we have just emerged from. You know, I think you've given me a great idea. I hadn't thought of it that way. And I also hadn't thought about uh, your example of Hillsdale as an association. I think these are two very good examples of what Tocqueville is talking about. Uh, to go back to the pandemic issue. Um, you know, what Tocqueville would fear would be the hand, you know, the a handful of elites using, as he says, the interest of the greatest number to trample upon the rights of individuals. And the pandemic was a classic example. But what Tocqueville also worries about is the habits of submission that this could eventually instill in the people. And for Tocqueville, you need public spiritedness to preserve freedom. And the difference between a citizen and a subject is the citizen governs his or, own, his or her own life, and the subject just simply takes orders. And I think that's what he really fears um, with the tyranny of the majority. Well, I, I, I hope you do write that, but I also hope that Dr. Arn writes down that you complimented a couple of my ideas. That's actually no, a first in the, in the <laughs> Hillsdale Dialogue. Nobody's going to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, will, you will get full credit. Well, Dr. Arn will erase it then. All right, we'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere, because Tocqueville also dealt with race, a fraught issue that we will deal with on the final segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Professor Dr. Khalil Habib, who is a professor there 
We're talking about Tocqueville, and we come to a fraught subject in Tocqueville because he deals with race. And every time we come up upon an old writing on race, we must cross the same very rickety bridges and be very, very dangerous where we step, very, very careful where we step, because every step is dangerous. So, Dr. Abib, what does he say, and what do you think about it now? What do you think people ought to think about it today? So he ends uh, the first volume with a discussion of uh, the fate of the Native Americans and the black slaves in America, and it's a tone of tragedy. Um, He's sympathetic to the Native Americans and to the slaves, and uh, there's no indication at all that Tocqueville believes that there are any fundamental racial differences between blacks and whites. He thinks, though, that there's bound to be future inequalities, even if slavery was to be abolished, because of the institution of slavery. That makes him unique. Um, If you're familiar at all, for example, with the writings of Calhoun, Calhoun would just argue that any inequality you see is based and rooted in race, which cannot be erased. That is not Tocqueville's view. Tocqueville believes that human beings are human beings, and the tragedy of slavery in the United States is that it's going to harm uh, the, the descendants of slaves as well. And when he treats the Native Americans, he wants to make sure that he presents them in the most noble light. Um, he finds in them a certain nobility and simplicity. Um, in many ways, he adopts Rousseau's view of what Rousseau called the natural savage, which was not a disparaging term from Rousseau's point of view. He compares that favorably to the softness of the bourgeois who doesn't have any real courage Tocqueville looks at the Native Americans in a very similar light. He sees something quite noble about them, but he doesn't think either um, slavery or the Native Americans are likely to continue to exist in the United States. Slavery, he simply thinks, is just at odds with the American founding. Yeah, and he was correct. Now, Dr. Abib, we will come back, at least Dr. Arn and I will, to Calhoun soon. We've been there before, and we both condemn his writing. I'm curious, did Tocqueville meet with Calhoun? He's the great blight on American intellectual history. An evil man, in my view. Uh, but what does he ever meet with him? Does he talk to Calhoun? Is he aware of his antithesis of Lincoln theory? Not that I know of, but um, Tocqueville certainly would be more aligned with Lincoln than he would be with Calhoun. But whether he met him in person, I don't know. It's a good question. Doctor, are you aware of that? Now, uh, uh, while you were asking that question, I did think of a stark contrast between the two, because Calhoun is affected through a guy named Liebing, according to our friend John Marini, at Yale, with, and Liebing was much in contact with Hegelian thought. He's a German. And, uh, and so when Calhoun writes about things, it, it's historicist. It's... Uh, you know, his, history has made race superior to others, and it would be an abomination to live together with them. Uh, Tocqueville, the perspective of Tocqueville is much more natural and original and old than that, because his idea is, you know, to, democracy in America, by the way, is sociological in its cast, and I have a theory about why. We'll see what, what Khalil thinks about it. Uh, in, in, in the, if, you, if you study the ancient city, the law and religion and everything is all bound up together. And the rule is that what the law does not uh, permit, it forbids. And so when you analyze a society like that, it's, it's much more intensely and almost exclusively political. Uh, now, 
Tocqueville is describing influences and habits of mind and, and manners that stem from the fact that we're free. And he glories in it, by the way, in a way that you could see Aristotle glorying in it, because you described the founding of the college. The people who did that here, you know, who did that are heroes here today. You know, first of all, they, they, their sons were brave in the Civil War. Some of them died. And second, they helped to devise the platform that Abraham Lincoln ran for president on. But their thing they were proud of is that they started this college, and they did it on their own initiative. In other words, they got to live rich, important human lives, despite the fact that they were a bunch of nobodies, right? In the middle of nowhere. And Tocqueville, I mean, it's it's very, that, that, that strain in Tocqueville is, in my opinion, my favorite part of it. And it's profound, right, because the actual protection against majority tyranny is the attachment people have to their ability to live of their own. Dr. Habib, we have less than a minute. You agree with that? Absolutely. Um, Tocqueville is not a historicist. He's often confused for one because he's tracing the history of the idea of democracy. But um, he often refers to certain episodes and vignettes in American culture as natural, like the family, or he discusses rights, uh, high praise for philosophy and the permanent things. Um, I think Dr. Arn's absolutely correct about that. When we come back next week, I'm going to ask Dr. Habib whether or not democracy in America ever got purchased among the Germans. I suspect it didn't. We will find out next week as we continue our deep dive into Alexis de Tocqueville on democracy in America. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including parts one and two on Tocqueville with Dr. Habib and Dr. Arndt. Come back for part four next week, America, on the Hillsdale Dialogue here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show